1: It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15.
0: And he said, here's my situation. I'm operating in an environment where you want everything here in this office to be as easy and intuitive as all the Apple products you have in your house. But you want me to keep every asset here completely safe from the many attacks that come to a law firm. And you want me to do all that with no downtime and no error and no need to train you on anything new and a very limited budget. And I said, "Okay, I see your point. This is Sarah. This is Beth. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics, the home of grace-filled political conversations. Friday. I hope that you all watched the Democratic debate. We're going to take a little time here at Pantsuit Politics to process what we heard. And we'll be back with you on Tuesday to talk about the debate today. We are going to drink from the fire hose of news that this week has given us and dive into some foreign policy and dive into some things happening around the United States as well. And we're bringing this to you from Wednesday night when we recorded live at Midway University. Thanks so much to Sarah Mudd and the team at Midway for being such a gracious host. But before we share our conversation from Midway, please
1: remember that Nuance Nation is in full swing. We will be stopping in Troy, Michigan, right outside Detroit this Saturday and speaking with my dear friend, Representative Haley Stevens. And then on Saturday, September 28th, we'll be in Louisville talking with Amy McGrath. So check those dates out and get your tickets now.
0: Without further ado, we hope you enjoy this episode. So we're going to begin by saying, bye see bye you later, John bye. Bolton.
1: Poor John Bolton. Okay, Poor so, John Bolton. Not sure I thought why this not? would begin.
0: <laughs> um, okay, so here
1: is the takes, the hot takes. We got a little bit he said, he said going on here. We got one story from the president who says, I fired John Bolton. And one story from John Bolton saying, you did not fire me. I, in fact, resigned. It looks as if reality probably leans a little more John Bolton side, but they've been in conflict for a long time. And actually, I give a little bit of credit to the president for bringing somebody on who I think he knew from the beginning had very, very different views than him. Um, there's the the one clip of him saying, John's a war He'd take on the whole world if we let him, that they've been playing over and over and over again since this news broke. And so I think that they were coming up against each other over and over again because John Bolton had a differing view about North Korea. John Bolton had a differing view about Iran. John Bolton had a differing view about Afghanistan. Are you noticing a trend here? John Bolton had a differing view about Venezuela. And so where he didn't want to strike deals, where he didn't want to even sit down at the table with most of these parties, President Trump felt very, very differently. So now he has run through his third national security advisor in three years.
0: And if you're following the sequence, we started with Michael Flynn very that was verbose, fast. bombastic personality. Then we went to H.R. McMaster, total military process guy, reserved. Then to John Bolton, bombastic, verbose personality. So perhaps we are due for another kind of quiet process-oriented person, especially given that a lot of the reporting about what's transpired with Afghanistan has been that the process really broke down here. We talked a lot about this on our Tuesday episode. One thing I heard after our Tuesday episode that we didn't touch on that I thought was so important was that Afghanistan, our presence as the United States in Afghanistan, has been a coalition effort. It's not just the U.S. NATO invoked Article 9 that says an attack on one is an attack on all, for the only time in its history after September 11th, 2001. And so to be participating bilaterally isn't even accurate, really, because we weren't talking to the government of Afghanistan. We were just talking with the Taliban. But to do that between the United States and the Taliban as though those are the only parties that would be impacted by a U.S. troop withdrawal That's a problem. That's a breakdown in our national security apparatus. And so I really, people keep saying to me, aren't we better off without John Bolton? I have no idea. It depends on who replaces him. And in some ways, I don't know if it matters that much because wherever you are on this administration, it's kind of a post-process administration. But I think it depends enormously on whether someone comes in who wants to put all those pieces back together.
1: Well, when I was reading all the reporting about John Bolton's exit, And one of the big things was that he took credit for the um, breakdown in the plan of having the Taliban come to Camp David. And he said, oh, that was me that put an end to that. And President Trump did not like him taking credit for that. And reading about the conflicts they've had, how John Bolton, you know, he was good on Fox News, but really from the second he became the national security advisor, they clashed. And I thought, you know, it's not just that Trump values loyalty, It's that there is really very little place for independence or just sort of a foundational belief in something. And I I keep thinking about Mick Mulvaney, Mr. Budget Cuts, Mr. We Cannot Have a Deficit, We Shouldn't Spend Like That. And now he's the chief of staff under the biggest deficit we've ever had. And I think about how you just have to, you have to swim. You have, it's, it's, it's like more than loyalty. It's that you have to be able to abandon everything. And I think John Bolton, and maybe that's why I said poor John Bolton, to his eternal credit, was not willing to do that. I mean, he is who he is and he believes he has his foreign policy approach and it is very hawkish, but it doesn't look like he was willing to bend even a little bit from that.
0: So let's move on from John Bolton. So we don't have a national security advisor right now. We won't until next week. We're gonna take a little trip around the world with some other headlines, beginning with something that's been attracting a lot of attention on social media this week, which is the fact that Hurricane Dorian just ravaged the Bahamas, and folks from the Bahamas are displaced by that hurricane. So I was just I was gonna... gonna step the reporting about what it's like. I mean, the
1: reporters are struggling to even put into words what it's like to look at the Bahamas. I heard one say, it just looks like a landfill. It just looks like a landfill. There is no building. There are no roads. Like, all you see is splintered wood as far as the eye can see, and I think it's really difficult to fully comprehend what the people of the Bahamas are facing, because there is no infrastructure. Zero infrastructure left.
0: Yeah, people are coming to the United States by boat because the airport was destroyed. So about 70,000 people were displaced by the hurricane. About 20,000 people who live in Florida today have Bahamian ancestry. So both by virtue of geography and family relations, it makes sense for people from the Bahamas to come into Florida. And you may have seen this week on social media that 119 people were kicked off of a boat headed to South Florida. And the reporting on this has been confusing. It has been impassioned. Um, The sharing of it has been... More Passionate Than Cautious in the details. That's that's a good subtitle for 2019. More Passionate Than Cautious. I think that's good. good. Hang on to that descriptor. So here's what happened the best I understand it. I think it matters that we get this right. So they were kicked off the boat, not by the U.S. government, but by the boat company itself. The boat company said it believed when they put the people on the boat that they just needed passports and police records to get into the United States. And then they said that somewhere along the journey, they get in touch with Customs and Border Patrol, and Customs and Border Patrol says, actually people need travel visas, like actual travel documents to get here. And that's when the boat crew kicks people off the boat. But then... CBP says, actually a clean record and a passport, we'll do it, we'll vet people with those documents and decide if they can come in or not. And the boat company and the government are blaming each other for what appears to be just a catastrophic breakdown in communication. And now we aren't sure what the rules are. So Mark Morgan, who's the acting CBP commissioner, because we don't have permanent folks in much of the Department of Homeland Security, um, Mark Morgan says that you can come whether you have travel documents or not, but you will have to go through the vetting process. The Department of Homeland Security, which is the umbrella under which CBP sits, says all travelers must have travel documents and a U.S. visitor's visa. But CBP can use its discretion to consider things on an individualized basis. Prior to this incident where people were kicked off the boat, a cruise ship called Grand Celebration brought over 1,000 people and 80% of those people had a visa and a passport. The cruise line said it's been an entire day before leaving the Bahamas working with CBP on what is the process and what do we actually need here. The other thing to know is that there's confusion about whether folks from the Bahamas will receive temporary protected status in the United States. That's an immigration status that, that they're trying to eliminate. Pretty much that they're trying to eliminate. It provides a work permit and a stay of deportation, and it can be in like six month, 12 month or 18 month intervals. We have several Congresswomen who have introduced legislation to give TPS to survivors of hurricane dorian they are congresswoman yvette clark of new york Stacey pickett of the virgin islands and barbara lee of california and so i'm hopeful that legislation passes i think this is the only way to be a good neighbor in this moment and i think we need clarity about what the rules are here well
1: it sounds like maybe we didn't need clarity before they started blaming each other and twitter got involved it sounds like we were working it out just fine and then once it became a controversy, it was like, oh, well, now we need to sort out exactly what the rules are, when it sounds like they were kind of winging it with just fine results to begin with.
0: Yeah, it's so hard to know what to share and what not to share. Many, many people have sent us the story about people getting kicked off this boat, and I haven't shared it at all on Twitter because I thought, I need to know the facts here. I, just, I have no idea what happened, but it's important to know what happened. So in our little tour around the world, I want to go next to Iraq. This story has kind of gotten lost today because so much is going on this week. But a U.S.-led coalition dumped 80,000 pounds of bombs on an island in Iraq. The point in this island is that ISIS has been coalescing here because there's so much vegetation that it's an easy place to kind of evade scrutiny. And so... This is an instance where using the phrase carpet bomb, as much as I hate that phrase, is probably appropriate. We just went at this spot today. And this happened with the Department of Defense releasing a really weird video showing the bombing with music behind it. And I don't quite understand why that occurred. In Baghdad, Iran is starting to buy billboards to put Death to America posters on. This one shows kind of a a distortion of the Statue of Liberty holding a cartoon Trump head. And what it says there is the U.S. is responsible for the region's insecurity and instability because it supports the Zionist occupation and terrorist groups. So there is real pressure in Iraq from Iran related to the United States and Israel. And in the midst of that, On the anniversary of September 11th, we dropped 80,000 pounds of explosives in the middle of Iraq. And I'm confused. And
1: I I don't know if this sounds like conspiracy theorists or if it just sounds like putting some different stories together. To me, it's not just that it's the anniversary of September 11th, but also... That it is, um, we're coming closer and closer to the to the upcoming election in Israel with Netanyahu out there saying we're going to annex the rest of the West Bank. Something that has never, ever been a position. Well, it has been a position of his party, but never something he's pushed for hardcore. Despite now that he's about to, he's about up for re-election, and so to me, those like moving pieces you see increased force from the United States. I mean. There seems to be a lot of coordination between the Netanyahu administration and the Trump administration, particularly when it comes to media and messaging and campaign strategy, honestly.
0: And because I can't get off this kick of accuracy this week in media reporting, this was a hard one for us because... When I saw this story this morning, I thought, is this real? This doesn't feel right to me. And I texted Sarah about it. And she said, it looks like only really conservative outlets have it right now. And that was true. And then I started looking military outlets had it. And that Department of Defense video had been released. And then this afternoon, I saw it starting to get picked up by more like Yahoo News and ABC. And so I don't know why the cycle timed out that way with this, other than the fact that everybody had already booked John Bolton think pieces, um, but but it's strange, and I think it's something that we need to really watch really quickly. This is from North Korea, which confirmed this week a second test of this is a quote: "Super large multiple rocket launchers." Hours after it said it would resume nuclear negotiations with the United States. See, this
1: is again maybe why my, why I said poor John Bolton immediately because here's what I thought: I thought in all these articles I'm reading about John Bolton. And they go through this this laundry list of areas around the world that, that he wants to attack or he wants to stop talking to. And the one where I'm like, I think John Bolton's right, is North Korea, which he never wanted to speak to, which he felt like was just um, offering validity and stature to the dictator of North Korea, Kim Jong-un. As I was kind of reading through this list and realizing like there are some small spaces in which I had agreement with John Bolton, I thought, well, that's why you need what we always talk about. That's why you need all the different voices at the table. Because the hawk is not right every time, but they're right some of the time. And the dove isn't right every time, but they're right some of the time. And playing out on each other. And when you have an administration that only wants one view and wants, you know, he he gives, he gives talks a lot about wanting disagreement. And I guess you have to a little bit of credit for having John Bolton on there to begin with but you really do you need that push and pull because in some places in some hot spots they are really just trying to manipulate you they really do need to see um, force or a united front from the international community that says we will give you no validity Um, and I do agree with him that North Korea is one of those spaces.
0: I don't know what to do in North Korea, but I was listening to a soundbite reel of John Bolton talking about some of these regimes in the world that he doesn't want to have any diplomacy with. And I thought to myself, I don't really disagree with his analysis about any of these. I disagree with what we do next based on this analysis, because I believe diplomacy is worth the risk, even when it is a very high risk. But I think his voice, a voice saying the first part of the sentence, you need to be careful. We've seen this movie before they come to the table and it's never oh, in good faith. That, that voice is important. Mm-hmm. I, I don't agree with sort of America as the super ego of the world, which is where I think John Bolton lands because of that. But I think he, he's been around and he yeah. has seen a lot. And, I, and I think he contributed some valuable things in that way.
1: Who would have thought that would have been the takeaway from pantsuit politics. This
0: is the why it's This is what I'm saying. <laughs> John Bolton had things to contribute. Okay, we're going to come home now and talk about what's happening in a few states across the country. You want to tell them about the battle of the Dan's? I know. I, I used your headline. Yeah, I, I looked it up it. twice
1: because I was like, started talking about, it and I'm like, wait, are they? They? They're both named Dan. Okay, okay, they're both. They are in fact both named Dan. Um, I have so so as a former political candidate myself. First, let me just express I have so much sympathy for Dan McCready. This gentleman has been running for this seat for like three years. I mean, he ran in 2018 and I mean, was an early candidate, lost, but then the other guy cheated. So that's why they had this special election. And now he had to do all of it again. And he lost by 2,000 votes, which is encouraging if you're a Democrat like me because this is a 12 point district for trump and so to only win by two point two yeah two points four thousand votes um is encouraging but and and the other thing i thought about dan mccready too is we always talk about that the campaign there is there is purpose in the campaign itself and whether you win or lose there is public service in running and he talked a lot about that in his in his concession speech in that we did something here and it was important and we gave voice to issues. I mean, this dude is like a, he's a veteran. He went to Harvard and Yale. He's a really impressive, or Harvard and Duke, I think. And he was a really impressive guy. And to dedicate so much of your life to this and to say, I'm glad I did it. I felt like I contributed something. Um, we talked about important things and we made progress. And he did. I mean, he lost by even less than he did the first time, I believe. And so, but still- Sorry for that. I'm sorry for Dan McCready.
0: I am troubled by the emerging narrative that this is about rural versus urban voters.
1: They're real big on that. That's the one takeaway they're all talking about.
0: And I think, especially for those of us living in a state like Kentucky, that's a dangerous place to go. I think it robs people of their autonomy. I think it creates caricatures of people. I think it vastly underestimates whatever the economic impact of agricultural tariffs going to be in advance of 2020, and so I just don't love that piece of this analysis. It's hard to make too much of special elections. It's hard to get people to show up in a special election. That's why this is a 4,000 vote differential, and so I don't love turning this into, you know, the working class farmers hate those cosmopolitan. I mean, it. That's well, a bad, bad place Carolina. To go. Let's not get
1: ahead of ourselves. I know.
0: Let's not do that. But there was one county that in the
1: 2018 election, he won by 1%. And then it swung and he lost it by 15%. There were it really is hard. You can see why they're leaning into that narrative because the suburban voter went even harder to the left and the rural voter went even harder to the right. It's like the, that, they're like solidifying. And I, you know, I agree that there's a, you know, everybody deserves their autonomy, but man, swings like that are hard to, to talk about.
0: But it is the suburban voter who cared enough about a special election in September to come out and vote and the rural voter who cared enough. You know what I mean? So I just think it's hard to judge and, and I don't think it's healthy for our country to lean too much into that fault line. We're going to take a quick break and we'll come right back. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. Well, let's fly all the way across the country to California and talk about some legislation that has passed one chamber of California's Congress. Sarah, do you want to describe the legislation? In a nutshell, it says that
1: Uber and Lyft and Instacart and DoorDash must treat their workers like employees and not like independent contractors anymore. And it sets up, it leans heavily on a California Supreme Court case that set up a test for how we determine whether you're an independent contractor or whether you're an employee?
0: This is the Dynamex test and it's three criteria. If a worker is performing under a company's control and the task the worker is performing are central to that company's business and the worker does not have an independent enterprise in that trade, the worker is an employee. And I think that in that trade piece is really surprising You know, if you have ever done any HR work... I was going to say, I think our
1: HR professional probably has some opinions about this.
0: (laughs) Well, who constitutes an independent contractor is like the bane of your existence because it's really hard to tell. But usually you say to someone, if you're doing work for me, but you're also doing work for other people and you have your own computer and you have your own business cards and you don't sit in my office all day, every day, then you're probably an independent contractor and that's how we need to resolve this. And this idea that... If you don't have an independent enterprise in that trade, that it is directly related for something like Uber and Lyft, where so many people are doing that as a second job or a weekend way to make extra cash… Or working for both of them, I mean, I'm really interested to see how that shakes out. If I work for both, I haven't been in one of these cars lately that doesn't work for both Uber and Lyft. So I wonder how that shakes out. The governor of California has expressed support for this bill. He has also said that he is still in negotiations with some of these companies. Uber and Lyft are pushing back hard against this. And part of what they've said is let's compromise on a guaranteed Hourly wage, an hourly minimum for our drivers of $21. And that makes a ton of sense to me, given how many people want flexibility and how many hours they drive every week.
1: They've also said they're going to spend $90 million pushing a referendum. Do y'all know about California and their referendums? Oh my lord, the state loves a referendum. I have friends in California when it comes time for election, they have like a referendum club, like a book club, but it's where they meet more than once to go over the book that's usually like this thick that explains all the referendums they're going to have to be voting on. It's bananas. They need to dial that down, in my personal opinion. Kentucky could dial it up. It's way too hard to get something on our ballot. California needs to dial a little bit down. Um, I, I struggle with this because I think this is the understatement of the year. I think the gig economy is problematic. Even if you're making $21 an hour, all the protections that are built in to our employment foundation, the health care, the retirement, vacation time, parental leave. There's none of that if you work in the gig economy. And I think it really contributes to the burnout that you see in millennials, in people that work in these industries. My struggle is in a perfect world where I'm, waving a magic wand, I'm not pushing everybody into that employment foundation. I'm releasing some of those things from employment and creating a social safety net. I don't actually want insurance tied to employment. I don't want parental leave tied to employment. Um, I would like those things to be available to everyone, whether you're working in a a gig job or whatever. But at this, but I, you know, what's going to come first? Should I say, you know, suck it up until we can abandon this sort of employee employment-based structure we have right now? Or should we say, well, let's push the employment structure to the breaking point by adding all these independent contractors so then we can decide it's not working? I, I, I just think we're in this really tough spot where we've pushed everything into, f- it, we've we've structured full-time employment with all these protections, which aren't great and aren't working. I was just reading about how We're leaning, we're we're coming into the time, Europe's already there, it's only a matter of time before it hits the United States, of negative interest rates. We're actually paying to save money, which is going to totally upend the way we've built retirement in this country. From pensions to 401ks, if you're getting closer to in retirement, you're going to push more of your money into bonds instead of the stock market, which is way too high of risk. But if you're going to have to pay to keep your money in bonds because of negative interest rates, then we got a real problem for people approaching retirement. And so, I think because of all those reasons, because I don't really love healthcare in, in this employment structure, I don't think retirement's even that great in that employment structure. I definitely don't think we have enough protections for working parents. And it, but I'm also arguing you can't exclude everybody working in the gig economy from the structure. That kind of sucks, but it's all we got right now. It's just I, you know we're in this in between, and I think you see that playing out with this bill. They're tr- they're taking something new and acting like well they're just independent contractors but they're kind of not i don't know i think it's really it's a really tough call
0: well the trouble is you don't have a homogenous population working for these companies i mean the nature of the gig economy is i can drive 2 hours a week or i can drive 70 hours a week right this is just how do i want to structure my life and i agree with you that there that is imperfect that that promises a freedom that People don't feel if they are relying on it for their primary source of income. I don't think the answer is to layer onto that structure, a system built for something completely different. And I think our employment laws as they currently exist are built for something completely different than what's happening in traditional businesses today.
1: This It's not working. It's but, not working anywhere. It's not
0: working. I mean, when you talk about retirement systems, the first thing that comes to mind for me is all the bankruptcy law I did and how, many, how much of the upheaval in our economy, I think, is In my lifetime, we grew up believing that any investment in real estate is a good investment that is going to pay off in the long run, and that's proven not to be true, that being part of your company's employer stock ownership plan is going to pay off for you. And so we've had all of this dismantling of what we believed were secure foundations around employment. I don't think taking something like Uber and Lyft and saying, you know, set up a pension and put everybody on a a a health plan exactly is the right thing to do here. And that's why I want to give some credit to the companies for stepping up and saying, let us offer a solution. I get that it's self-interested. It would be much cheaper for them to pay a higher guaranteed hourly wage than to treat everybody as employees. But I also think that might be the, the solution that's in the best interest of the people driving the cars and doing the gigs as well.
1: I also think, and I say this as a person, who takes Ubers and who takes Lyfts? I don't use Instacart because my husband likes to go to the grocery store. But I see some DoorDash in my future. It just came to my hometown. And I think the hard reality of these convenience startups is we're really, the companies are built on offloading, the risk, and the cost to various other parties. I mean, then there was an article in the New York Times about how Amazon delivery, that people are getting killed, and Amazon's not being held liable because people are going so fast, and they want to get to the, they want to reach these goals, and people are getting killed. And you have the gig economy and all that cost. And these, these startups are built on a pile of investments and startup dollars. And, not pushing the risk and the burden off on other people or other institutions for a convenience that we're not, it's only convenient and affordable because we are really not paying the cost of this new convenience economy. So we can we can go get our own food, you know, like you can just go pick it up. And now some people can't, and I understand that. And I understand that for people who are homebound some of these things i mean are opening up an entire other quality of life and i get that and that is important however if the convenience is coming at the cost of the worker our infrastructure other people's lives and the companies are being like well we not going to well we won't be able to coexist well then i'm sorry your business model's not good if your business model can't exist without this pile of startup cash and you pushing all the risk off of the company then we need to go back to the table and you need to think of something else. It's like Uber was going to fix traffic, except it didn't. It made it worse. It makes it 10 times worse. And so I I think that especially with Uber and Lyft, but also with these Instacart, all these delivery things, we're going to all have to have a little come to Jesus about how badly do we want things to show up at our door?
0: Well, it's a bunch of things at one time because we need innovation to come up with new jobs because lots of old jobs are going away. And so we do have to be a little bit creative about what can people be doing. Here are some things they can be doing. I think at the same time, we have to understand that businesses have a shelf life and some of these innovations are going to work for a while and then not. Or they're going to work not at all and we're going to have to ditch them. To me, the fundamental problem in our economy since the financial collapse, and clearly before it, I think this is what caused the collapse, is this risk-shifting notion. The notion that it's always somebody else's issue. You know, the reporting about Uber and Lyft is if if this California bill goes through, they're going to pass all this new cost on to consumers. And my answer to that is Well, fine, Fine, because I believe, well, and and also I believe people driving those cars deserve a living wage. And if I use the service, I need to be part of paying for that fine. But that's not a very American attitude, right? And with the tariffs, we're having this conversation as a country in a a bad artificial context, I think. But I, I do think there's an important discussion to be had about what is it worth to us to have jeans made here? And am I willing to pay more for that? And the financial collapse was financial firms saying, I'm gonna hedge against what could happen here and then I'm gonna hedge against your hedge and I'm just gonna keep passing the risk somewhere else all the time. The bill never comes due. And I think what we're living right now in America is the bill coming due and everybody looking around saying, who would like this bill, not me? And you know that's sort of the wealth inequality conversation that Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren are driving but they shouldn't be alone in asking that question of here's the bill it, like what do we do now and i feel like that's kind of that kind of gets to what are we willing to sacrifice people's bodies for i think about this with football you know the the bill is coming due so What do we want to do about it?
1: We didn't even touch on the, like, sexual assault people's actual security at risk when they're taking Uber and Lyfts and all those controversies that we had to force them to confront and change things in response to. It's not like they were anticipating all the cost and risk associated with their innovation. They just weren't. They were going to roll the dice and see what happened.
0: Well, coming to pay the price brings us back to Kentucky because... Kentucky Wired is... In the news again because ProPublica and the Courier Journal are just determined to make Governor Bevan's life miserable and everyone in the Bevan administration unhappy. This time, the Bashir family is not going to love this reporting either. So, Kentucky Wired, if you haven't heard anything about this, was an attempt started under the Bashir administration to bring broadband to rural Kentucky. And the basic concept was we're going to compete with ATT for the contract to provide wireless to all of our school systems and that's going to fund this massive infrastructure project and eventually we'll be able to sell services to the private sector and we'll be able to offer more public services and it is going to be a win-win-win for everybody and in order to facilitate that infrastructure we did a public-private partnership with Macquarie capital a fund out of australia and the new reporting tells us that in the course of working with Macquarie, we hired conflicted consultants who had no telecommunications experience. One of those consultants was married to the cabinet secretary for Steve Bashir. He had a healthcare consulting company. And people switched roles in the course of this project. The Kentucky Department of Education was continually warning the administration that Kentucky was not going to qualify for federal grant money that they were counting on in connection with these school projects, that Kentucky was not going to win the bid against AT&T, that we were getting the best price on Wi-Fi for schools. And it just sounds like chaos and incompetence and blue sky thinking at every turn without a real reality check. And so Governor Bevan has inherited this problem. He initially was going to shut this project down. I don't know what changed his calculus, but he's now in favor of finishing We are two years and $100 billion behind schedule, and that $100 billion is a liability for the Kentucky taxpayer because all of the money that was supposed to materialize to help fund this infrastructure investment did not. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. Our listeners can use code Pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you.
1: Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code podcast15. May I wax poetic a little bit for Bar- about Please, Barack Jim. Obama <clears throat> just for a moment? It reminds me of so often this happens. It reminds me a lot of reading about the occupation of Iraq. And that we have big dreams. We have big dreams and big visions. And they are usually based on absolutely nothing going wrong. In this, in this really beautiful combination with every, nothing will go wrong. And also, I feel so optimistic that nothing will go wrong. I will put people with absolutely no experience in charge. Which is a really fascinating thing human beings do. But it does seem to be a pattern. Um, You see it there, you see it with lots of things. Like this just idea of it's all going to work smooth, you know, it's it's so obvious that this is what's going to happen that we don't really even need to put people who might not, who might be, have the expertise to solve any problems that could come up along the way. Um, this is a thing that has happened before and why I want to wax poetic about Barack Obama for just a minute. And the Obama administration is, it is phenomenal to me that they got Obamacare off the ground. When I read about projects like this, where we really just don't, we have the beautiful dream. We sell it to the public. We almost a hundred percent of the time sell it as costing way less than it's going to. And then we put people in charge that aren't capable of getting it off the ground. Now, listen, you know, Obamacare is not without its flaps. Everybody remembers Healthcare healthcare.com gov but like sometimes i think like the fact that that just was it, it didn't just like we're still not 10 years later being like we were supposed to get healthcare and it never showed up you know like the fact that they were able to get it off the ground sometimes it's phenomenal to me when you see things like this now that's different than actual physical infrastructure which is what you see in iraq with what you see with um kentucky wired and the thing is it's not it the vision is good there's a reason the public bought it. We desperately do need internet. It's the roads of 2019. It's the electricity of the early 1900s. Like that's how LBJ got to be LBJ. He got electricity for his district. That's how important it was. You weren't going to you weren't going to advance into the 20th century without electricity and you're not going to advance into the 21st without the internet. It is vitally important. And you know, maybe I'm the eternal optimist, but there There is a part of me that thinks if you looked at Kentuckians and said, we didn't realize how much this was going to cost, but it's worth investing in our state and we're just going to have to belly up and pay the rest, they would do it if there was any remaining trust that the government are good stewards of our finances, which if there was any left, which I don't think there was, would be eviscerated by the reporting on all the corruption and the consultants. That's a really tough
0: spot. Well, I think a couple of things. Infrastructure is really hard always, and the worst case scenario needs to be factored into all the planning. The first step here, they though, they never do it. They never they do it. Never do it. The Why first is step here, that? though, wasn't even the infrastructure. It was the, it was the financing, and I don't understand carrying the ball this far down the court without being certain about that financing. On the infrastructure piece, I think a lot about when I first met the IT director at my old law firm, I sat down with him and I was young and had a lot to learn. And I felt our technology sucked and I wanted to know why. Thank you very much. I said it nicely, but I wanted to understand. And he said, well, you're, you've been a lawyer here. Yes. How much tolerance do you have for downtime from our technology? And I was like, not a lot. Approximately three and a half minutes. How much tolerance do you have for learning new systems? Okay, I'm, I'm following you. How much tolerance do you have for errors where we try something and we get it wrong? And he said, here's my situation. I'm operating an environment where you want everything here in this office to be as easy and intuitive as all the Apple products you have in your house but you want me to keep every asset here completely safe from the many attacks that come to a law firm. And you want me to do all that with no downtime and no error and no need to train you on anything new and a very limited budget. And I said, okay, I see your point. And I think about that a lot because it helped me understand that setting up Alexa in my house is different than running a network for an organization. And running a network for an organization is different than launching healthcare.gov. And so when you're sitting in an office in Frankfurt thinking, we really need broadband. Let's build our own system. I'm sure we can compete with AT&T. Somebody needs to walk in and provide a reality check of what that looks like. You need a
1: John Bolton that's like, no, this will be terrible. We should not do this. People will exploit us. We should probably
0: bomb some things instead. And I agree with you that we need this infrastructure. I just don't understand why the thought was let's build our own, instead of let's look at the state. There's a reason these companies merge with each other and there are like four people left making television shows in the world when you get right down to it. These things are about scale and all of the fiber that goes into this, it is all about scale and cost management. Yeah, and I just I, but um, I
1: get it as the Democrat, I totally get it. The Democrat's gonna go no, we'll get it the table, we'll be huge, we'll have bargaining capacity, and we'll get it cheaper. I know exactly what was said.
0: We're a 1,000% not huge to AT&T. You know what I mean? And it's just, I just think the lack of perspective here is pretty stunning. I also think the political implications are interesting because, look, this is described frequently as one of my favorite words, a boondoggle for Governor Bevin, because it's in his court now. At the same time, Senator Chris McDaniel is looking at this and saying, I have called on Attorney General... Andy Bashir to investigate what went down in the Steve Bashir administration. And Andy Bashir has said, I have learned nothing that merits an investigation. The state auditor is doing some investigating on this. So the political impact of our sitting attorney general being the son of the governor who created this situation and a candidate for governor himself is really fascinating. There are, I don't think, this is a partisan issue as much as it is a good governance issue. And I also think it is a call to Kentuckians to get some other people running for office who are not like related to all the people in power. Bless your heart, Kentucky. Bless your heart.
1: Thank you for joining us. Thank you to Midway. We can't wait to come back on Tuesday and discuss the debate. And until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. David McWilliams, Joshua Allen, Linda Rucker, Martha Bernatsky, Melanie Cravey, and Tiffany Hassler.
0: Our theme music is composed and performed by Dante Lima. The music under our ads is composed and performed by Dylan Garvin. Learn more about our lives, live events that we're involved in, and what we're reading each week by
1: signing up for our weekly newsletter at PantsuitPoliticsShow.com.
0: And connect with members of the Pantsuit Politics community by following us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.